couple Sundays ago, producer Ashley Murray and I spent the afternoon watching homemade porn. Not together, we were in our separate homes. We're friends, but not quite watching porn together, friends. Anyway, these films are part of the Hump Festival, which is an amateur porn film festival founded by sex columnist and activist Dan Savage. I don't want to give too much away, but in general, these are erotic films. They run less than five minutes, but they cover a lot of ground, whether in genre, tone, sexual orientation, or number of partners. This weekend, Hump returns to Pittsburgh for screenings at the Ace Hotel in East Liberty. Maybe you remember last year when it was moved from a theater in Dormont after receiving complaints from locals about being, you know, too naughty. More on that later. Anyway, if you're dying to go to Hump, but you don't have tickets, guess what? We have two tickets to give away, and you can get your hands on them by tweeting our code word, which I'll reveal in a second, on Twitter to us at PGHCityPaper with the hashtag CPPodcast. Are you ready? The password is dinosaur. If you win, you can attend either Friday or Saturday screenings and bring a friend. I would recommend taking whoever produces your podcast. Welcome to the City Paper Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today I'm talking with the great Dan Savage about the Hump Film Festival, among other things. We move our weekly panel out of the elevator to discuss graffiti, baseball, and art with the CP staff. And Celine attends a craft beer festival. Stick around. This week, our guest is Dan Savage, the writer behind the 20 years and running sex advice column, Savage Love. You've read it. It's in the city paper. I know you have. His acronyms are the best. In addition to his column, Savage works hard at advocating for LGBTQ communities. And this weekend, you can see one way he does that. On Friday and Saturday, his 11th annual amateur porn film fest, Hump, makes a stop in Pittsburgh at the new Ace Hotel in East Liberty. These are 22 new, quote, homegrown porn films that are inclusive of all body types, genders, kinks, and fetishes. It's a porn festival about inclusion. Here's how Dan put it. It's an amateur porn film festival. Uh, people are invited to make uh, porn movies or erotica. We get everything that runs the gamut from totally hardcore to uh, animation and softcore and erotica uh, to make a five-minute tops-length film um, and other than that, they can people can do whatever they want. And what's so really great about Hump is the way we watch porn now. We all go online and we click on only the stuff that we want to see, only the stuff that works for us, that hits the sweet spot. And we don't watch each other's stuff. Um, and Hump sort of takes over. You're going to watch porn at Hump that if you were home alone sitting in front of your computer masturbating, you would not click on. And that's... Uh, that kind of makes it a celebration of human sexuality and human sexual diversity. And the films and the filmmakers who participate in Hump are really creative. Uh, and we get everything from dirty movies made on, for fun on the side by professional filmmakers to uh, the most common stuff at Hump, which are just groups of friends and lovers getting together, people who want to be porn stars in a movie theater. Uh, for a little bit, for a weekend, without having to be porn stars online for all eternity, they get together and they make a movie. And a lot of them are really great, and it's really fun and really funny stuff. And, you know, one of the things that you always hear about how, or hear about porn, for people who don't like it, is that porn is dehumanizing. 
And what you'll find at Hump is really humanizing porn, very deeply humanizing porn. I was kind of curious about the the length of five minutes. How did you arrive at that? <laughs> Through trial and error. Yeah. Um, you know, when we the first year when we did the festival, we thought, well, you know, a regular porn is what 60 minutes and you fast forward through most of it, and it's interminable. Um, and that was sort of video cassette porn uh, we were thinking of. And so we had a 12-minute limit. And then, wow, like really a 12-minute something could really still be interminable <laughs> and require fast-forwarding. And so then, you know, a couple years later, we had cut it down to eight minutes. Um, and that, it still applied. Like, that was a long time to watch one porn short. Uh, you know, we would get films that were pretty good, but they featured, you know, six minutes of thrusting, and that's too much. Yeah. Um, and so we cut it down to five, and that seems to be the sweet spot. All right, so, you know, a few months ago I was re-listening to this old uh, This American Life where you were talking about uh, watching portrayals of, of gay men uh, in cop shows with your dad and then how you thought about heterosexual portrayals when now you watch TV with your son. Obviously, that's kind of on a mainstream cultural level. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious uh-huh. if those stories kind of played a role in the creation and uh, the continuation of Hump. Yeah, that absolutely plays a role. You know, we look at diversity while we're putting together. Uh, a bad film that features a type of person or a type of sex act or a type of gender expression that we've never had in Hump isn't going to get in because we don't want bad films. Um, but we do put an eye on, or, you know, we do try to be aware of um, it being sprawling and, you know, as, as many people as possible, different kinds of people being in there. Uh, I think the diversity that matters most is the diversity of the audience. Uh, it's a fun thing to watch every year. You know, when the festival is in Seattle, I always ask the audiences who's never been to Hump before. And it's wonderful to watch a big audience of people who've never been to Hump before because you've got gay men watching lesbian porn, you've got straight guys watching gay porn, you've got vanilla people watching kink porn, you've got cisgendered people watching porn uh, with trans people made by those trans people for themselves, not for the trans porn cliche market. And the the most amazing thing happens um, in the first like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, first four or five films, people are just kind of thrown back in their seats. and They're like, oh my God, because all they see up on the screen is that's not anything I would watch if I was home alone. That's not my preferred plumbing. That's not a sex act I'm interested in. That's not my kind of gender expression flavor I like. And all people can see are the differences. Like, oh my God, there's the gay guys. Oh my God, there's the kink. Um, and then something amazing happens about you know a third of the way, halfway through, Everyone's cheering, everyone's clapping, everyone's laughing. No one is having the wind knocked out of them anymore. No one is thrown back in their seats anymore. And what happens, there's this, like, uh, transformation uh, because all all these people, all these same people who initially could only see the differences, that's not mine, that's not me, that's not what I'm into, can see the similarities all of a sudden because under that really thin veneer of, you know, genitals or sex acts or sexual orientation, everything under that is exactly the same. Everything under that is shared. Lust, desire, vulnerability, humor, all of that is exactly the same. And people suddenly begin to tap into that. Yeah, they really, um, especially in watching them in succession, there's really, they provide a context for each other that I think starts to sort of like make those things universal and it really, it really connects to the audience that way. 
It does. It's really, you know, it wasn't the intention. Like, we didn't, the, the hump was just what we conceived of it. going to be this fun thing, this lark. Maybe one year we would do it just once, you know, just to see if we could. Um, and all this other stuff is sort of an ancillary benefit. All this, like, you know, uh, making cis people more comfortable with uh, trans people's bodies uh, has been one thing that Hump, I think, has done, because there's usually one or two uh, trans films in Hump um, where trans people are presenting themselves as themselves and for themselves. And that's, you know, that's stuff that most people who aren't interested in trans porn would ever, ever, ever see. And I think that's really helpful. And the same thing with, like, you know, just mainstream, if I can call it that, mainstream gay sex. And a lot of straight people are really uncomfortable with gay sex. And then they see it. <laughs> They're not quite as uncomfortable anymore. Because a blowjob is a blowjob is a blowjob. I'm curious, over the past 11 years of this run, has there been anything that you regret in the curation? Has there been something that happened that maybe you wish you did differently? Uh, sure, there's been a few films that we rejected that I think we shouldn't have. Um, I'm just one person on the jury. Uh, I can, as the, you know, uh, the RuPaul of Hump, I can overrule everybody and put something in that everybody else didn't want. Uh, and I let myself be overruled once, and I shouldn't have. <laughs> um, and early on, there were some films that, you know, as we were beginning to feel this thing out and learn what this thing was, as it was revealing itself to us as well, there were some films we included that now, looking back, would never, ever get in the hub. So looking into the future, um, let's say, just to pick a random number, let's say, home at 20 years, what do you think? What would you like it to accomplish? <laughs> I would like it to keep entertaining people. <clears throat> I would like more people to participate. Uh, Hump has been a Seattle-Portland thing for a decade. Uh, we'd love to see more uh, racial diversity in Hump and economic diversity in Hump. Um, Hump is uh, a product of Seattle and Portland, which are two overwhelmingly white places. One of the criticisms uh, we've gotten uh, over the last couple of years, now that we're taking Hump on the road, is there's not a lot of people of color in Hump, although I think this year we have more people of color than ever in one Hump. Um, and that's not because we're throwing out films from people of color. It's because it's really a cultural product of Seattle and Portland, which are overwhelmingly white. Uh, two years ago, there was a little bit of a, a brush up in this neighborhood in uh, in Pittsburgh, where Hump was going to play, and some citizens had some <laughs> issues with it. You remember that? Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about that over the past couple of days, and you mentioned uh, vanilla earlier, and I was thinking sort of about uh, obviously a lot of people who don't want a public discourse about sex, who feel uncomfortable about it being discussed. Um, obviously, there's a history of, of repression and fear and bigotry and really terrible things that come with that. But I also imagine there are just some people who, who don't have all that baggage and simply feel uncomfortable about watching, uh, even if it's, as you said, even if there's such a human element to it, just feeling uncomfortable doing that in public. Um, right. Do you encounter that a lot uh, with promoting that? <laughs> no, we haven't uh, lost a lot of venues. And I think it's hilarious that you know we got chased out of whatever suburb that was. Yeah. Because are they aware that the Internet is there? <laughs> are they aware you can go to Starbucks and get online and watch porn that is much more hardcore, much more demeaning, uh, produced under conditions where people were harmed? Um, you know, the idea that you can keep porn out of a community... Uh, or keep sex or a discourse about sex out of the community by banning our little traveling uh, porn film festival is ridiculous. 
<laughs> it's laughable. Like, I'm laughing. It's literally laughable. Well, to be honest, it was surprising to people in Pittsburgh as well that, I mean, it is a suburb, but it's very close. It was kind of surprising that they would respond that way. And then what happened? We found a new venue. People who hadn't heard about Hump until they heard about the controversy found out about it and came. Uh, it's the censor's conundrum or the censor's paradox that every time you try to censor something, it makes people want to go see it more. It draws attention to it. My favorite are, and this has happened probably five or six times over the 11 years we've done Hump here in Seattle and Portland. Someone will come up to me after Hump and take my arm and say, I hate porn. My friends dragged me here. I didn't want to come. I loved it. It was so wonderful. And that's that, you know, we do humanizing porn thing. Like somebody who objected to porn because they find it so dehumanizing came to Hump and saw humanizing porn and realized that the problem wasn't porn. The problem was the kind of porn that they had been exposed to or the kind of porn that may be even most common. And in one case, and this is my favorite hump story of all time, this woman came up to me and said that. Oh, my God, I hate porn. My friends made me come. I loved it. It was so great. Thank you for doing it. Oh, my God. It was so wonderful. And that person made a hump film and was in a hump film the following year. So it went from porn is terrible. I hate porn. I would never watch or consume porn uh, to watching hump, loving hump, to being in hump all in 12 months. All right. So last question. You just mentioned uh, destroying the films at the end. I imagine a lot of these things are just online submissions. Is that, is there any sort of a ceremony? I mean, is, or are you just dragging it, on, <laughs> dragging it into the trash on your? Well, desk? eleven eleven years ago, you know, when it was on uh, physical tape, we would um, pop the tapes out of the or pop the screener tape it was a little thing that looked like a tiny cassette out of the projector and bring it down and take a hammer to it, just destroy it on stage. Um, then, it, then now it's a then it became a CD, and we would snap it on stage. Uh, now it's digital, and so we just delete everything after the festival is over. All right, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, my pleasure. It was a really wonderful talking to you. Hump is at the Ace Hotel in East Liberty Friday at 7 and 10 p.m., and on Saturday at 7 and 9.30. Thanks a million to Dan Savage for taking the time to talk with me. Up next on our Soundbite segment this week, Celine takes us to the Pittsburgh Winter Beer Fest. Local illustrator and author Mark Brewer, great name, helps her tackle the more than 300 beers on tap. And don't worry, it's not all IPAs named after hop puns. Have you tried Baltic Porters or Guza? If not, here's Celine's take on them. center downtown in this huge vaulted room. There are tons of tables all around. They all have those silly plastic red tablecloths that you buy for your high school graduation party or for your bachelorette party to cover your pop-up tables and maybe your camping tent. That's what it looks like in here, uh, except that it's filled with delicious beer and many, many people will be drinking it over the course of Friday and Saturday. About 20,000 if their projections are right. So today we're going to be taking a look and hopefully a taste at some of the beers that don't receive as much limelight. So we're not going to be tasting IPAs today. Sorry guys. I know that you love them, but I'm tired of them. So Soundbite is here with Mark Brewer, who is the author of Brewology, an illustrated dictionary for beer lovers. And 
I would just like to know, walking into this pandemonium, what the best way to tackle this is, because there's so much beer, there's so much great stuff to drink, and I don't, I don't want to overwhelm my palate, and I don't want to be dragged out of here on a stretcher. Right. So help me. Right. I think the way you want to go about it, to break it down really simple, it's like when you eat foods in different courses, there's a reason for that. So you're not overcharging your palate in the beginning. So you do the same thing here at a beer festival. You might start with something um, that's uh, clean and refreshing, like uh, a Kolsch. They've got wonderful taste, but it's clean and it's crisp. And then you want to go on to something that's more of what I would call a middle beer. And then you want to go to your porters and your stouts. And that's what this is, the Pittsburgh Winter Beer Fest. And tis the season for porters and stouts. And, and uh, there are a lot of them out here, and those have a little bit higher ABV, and there are a lot more taste in those. So you want to leave the, the beers with the most taste for the last. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, yeah. Thank you. Now that we've been fortified with some advice by Mark, we hopped over to Valentine Brewing Company from Cool Spring, Minnesota to try their Valentine Bertinale, which is kind of like an IPA of your or maybe it's neglected sibling. It hasn't been very popular in the recent years, uh, but it's making a little bit of a comeback now, and I'm just going to give it a taste. I've actually, I've never had one. It's funky. It's it's like the brightest IPA you could have. If you were drinking an IPA and then someone shined a flashlight in your eyes, that's the face you would make. That's the face my producer is making right now. It's also a little syrupy. And this is a disclaimer. I'm not a beer expert. You're listening to the ramblings of a non-beer expert right now. But I'll do my best. Hi. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. You? I'm well. I'm here to taste the goza. The goza, you say? Yes. yes. Absolutely. It's a kind of a tart, sour, refreshing wheat ale. It's kettle sourced with uh, a little, actually a little bacteria though. It's brewed with sea salt and coriander. However, unlike traditional versions of this style, ours features liberal additions of blood oranges during fermentation. This gives us citrus notes to complement the champagne-like flavors, creating a complex and seasonable ale, perfect for any occasion, and it's a light 4.2% alcohol volume. So Beer Fest is a volunteer-supported event. And by that I mean that every table where beer is being poured is almost entirely staffed by volunteers. So they're all equipped with a little bit of explanation of their beers. Uh, some brewers maybe didn't think to do that. So there's a couple of volunteers who are just pouring beers, making people happy, but might have to read off a sheet to tell me what's going on, which is totally fine. Thank you for all the volunteers. This is an event for people who love to drink beer but might be a little bit of a disappointment for beer nerds unless you bring your beer nerd friends so you can all talk to each other about it. How are you doing, guys? Good, how are you? Good. 
Are you here with Otter Creek? I am with all three actually, Otter Creek, Shed, and Longshell Brewing. Okay, well I came to try the steam pipe. Otter Creek rule! <laughs> steam pipe is very new to the Pittsburgh market. It's been here for about two weeks. 6.0% alcohol on that beer. Um, it's made kind of like California Common Acre Steam. It's going to be the style of beer that you are drinking. Can you tell me what a California Common is? It, it's a type of lager. Um, like I said, we, we bottled it after Anchor Steam, being like the craft brewery that it is, being like, you know, such a foundation in American craft brewing. So it, it's very similar to that. It uses the cold fermentation process. So for my quick research before we came, I looked at the California Common, and this was a type of beer that was made to accommodate warm weather. So you need to be able to cool it down quickly, and they use a specific strain of yeast in order to accommodate that process. Uh, it's 100% American, and it's really tasty. It's like a lager that you fancied up a little bit, and you're gonna take on a date. So we are wending our way up to Duck Rabbit, which is a brewery out of Farmville, North Carolina. And as they say, they're the dark beer specialists. So we are here to try a Baltic Porter, which is brewed extra strong, so high ABV, and was meant to be shipped across the Baltic Sea. So it's, it's a very stable beer. Are you tapping your Baltic Porter tonight? Yes. Excellent. Yes. Can I have a very small pour of it? Yes, you may. I'll rinse it out for you. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell me about it? <laughs> the porter? Yeah. I know that the, uh, from like other porters, it's like dark, roasty, maybe a little bit of hint of coffee in there. Tastes like dessert. Just like a porter should. You want that next? Sure. I have to cut myself off. I'm, I'm working, uh, technically. Okay. <laughs> Take Thanks, Celine. Now for our panel discussion, we have City Paper Editor Charlie Deach, our Arts Editor Bill O'Driscoll, and Staff Writer Rebecca Nuttall talking about what they have coming up this week. The elevator was all booked up, so we were forced to record in a recording studio. If you have complaints, send them to Ashley Murray. Here's my talk with the panel. Thanks for being here, everybody. My pleasure. Sure. Yeah. All right, Becca, this week you wrote about uh, graffiti and its scene here in Pittsburgh. Graffiti is nothing new. What made you want to write about it now? So I was inspired to do this story at the end of last year when I started thinking about some of the graffiti that I'd seen growing up around Pittsburgh. And then what made it really timely is earlier in February, um, a CMU student by the name of Max Gonzalez was arrested. He had um, reached the top of Pittsburgh Bureau of Police's graffiti squad and he was on the most wanted list for doing over $140,000 worth, worth of damage around the city. So it really made it timely to look at, you know, why this graffiti squad came back, um, what kind of work are they doing, you know, looking at the debate in Pittsburgh, what is graffiti, what is art, and that type of thing. So when you say graffiti, are we talking about, like, pretty public art sort of things or just, like, tags? So um, the 
my story focused on all kinds of street art. There were, you know, people talking about just tagging, like what Mr. Gonzalez was arrested for. But there were also people talking about, you know, some of the more political street art that you see around Pittsburgh. Also some of the, you know, murals that people and businesses are actually commissioning in Pittsburgh that you're seeing go up in a lot of places now. So my story really covered a wide swath of street art. Can you tell me more about Max Gonzalez? His uh, his tag was Gem, right? Yeah. So um, the funny part thing about him is that according to the police, he was actually arrested two two or three years ago. But because they didn't have the task force that they currently have up and running, they were only able to charge him with one tag. So he's actually been you know pretty prominent for a while now, and this was the first time they were able to charge him with everything. Uh, can we see some some of his tags? Do you know where where some prominent ones are? Um, allegedly, there's apparently um, a bunch in like over, I don't know, 50 locations, they said, throughout Pittsburgh. But um, there's a lot in Lawrenceville. There's a lot in Oakland, obviously, by CMU that they said you could find them there. Yeah, I've noticed going down Penn uh, in Bloomfield, there is one tag that says skunt. <laughs> it sounds very, yeah, it sounds bad. <laughs> S-C-U-N-T. <laughs> um, and it's just every flu- every few blocks, and it's not really a... Uh, it's not really contributing anything to a dialogue. It's kind of, it's kind of just, here's my name over and over and over again. Um, That's exactly um, this one guy who I talked to who has never done illegal street art. He's never done graffiti. He said that he's not really a fan of a lot of it because it is just, you know, a bunch of kids starting at one end of the street and walking down and just putting their tag all along the street. Yeah. So, the wait, Max is, um, you said 20? He's 22. I say kid, but yeah. that's because I'm old. Yeah. You're an old 30-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but don't you see some of that stuff? Even if it just says skunt, don't you wonder, like, who skunt is, what skunt does? I don't know. I think there's – you could – I can find purpose in anything, even skunt tags. But, you know, I don't know. I've never seemed to mind graffiti. I always kind of enjoyed – like, I would look at it and I would think, like, oh, you know, uh, who's Jizzwalker or whatever the hell, you know, the the tag might be. But I I don't know. I've always found that stuff interesting. I like – obviously, the more elaborate stuff is a lot cooler to look at. But – I don't know. To dedicate two city police officers to just tracking down graffiti artists is, I don't know, I think is a waste of resources. Charlie, what about, I mean, you know, people do this kind of graffiti where they use uh, battery acid and shoe polish, I'm told, and scar up like shop windows, for instance. That's that's a good point because Rebecca and I talked about this last week, the difference between graffiti art and vandalism. That's vandalism in my mind. But if you're if you're spray painting a wall that – you know, especially on, on old buildings, I think that there's – granted, you shouldn't be defacing anyone's property. But there are a lot of buildings in this town that, that aren't good for anything else. And, you know, I, I just don't – again, I don't see the problem with that. But, no, I, what you're talking about, in my opinion, is vandalism. And I think that that's a way – that's a whole lot different than, than, than graffiti art. You certainly – I mean, you cover art for us. Where do you draw the distinction? Or do, do you draw the distinction? Do you think something is bad and something is good in terms of graffiti or – yeah, I do. There's certainly gray areas in there, but I think, you know, obviously writing on somebody's property, straight painting on somebody's property, like their house, for instance, sure. um, without their permission is is kind of definitely crosses a line. Um, I think, and, and Becca's story gets into this part really well, the story that comes out tomorrow, is why not set aside areas where people who want to do street art can can do it? You right. know, and, and these these kind of blank areas of the city, like I want to say uh, along the jail trail on uh, which I think is mentioned Becca's story, too, on um, 
uh, be, between downtown and Greenfield. Just big a bunch of big blank walls there, yeah. and I think you know a, a decent artwork on those walls, inventive stuff, whether it's stylized letters or murals or whatever. I think only improves it. I think for me, before this story, I really thought that tagging was I considered that vandalism. But then talking with some of the graffiti artists around Pittsburgh, one of them compared it to kind of the Japanese calligraphy style. And I just thought that was really interesting because I'd never thought of it that way. So I, I really learned a lot doing the story. Before we wrap up, I just want to come clean and admit that I am skunt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now switching gears to legal art. Bill, can you tell us what's going on in the Hill District this week? Yeah, there's a uh, there's a new initiative up there. So <clears throat> folks might know the Hill House Association, which is kind of a venerable community-based group up there on Center Avenue, not not very far from downtown at all. And uh, they have a new initiative they're calling 28 Days, which is to spotlight uh, African-American art and artists, especially folks from the Pittsburgh community. So this is ongoing. It started a week or two ago, but they're, they're spotlighting uh, artists with different sort of exhibitions at their space and other kind of events including a, uh, a film screening this, uh, this Saturday. It's, called, uh, it's, a, it's a film called Can You Dig This? It's about urban gardeners in Compton out in Los Angeles, um, you know, trying to find ways to, to grow food for people out there in an urban setting. Um, there's also uh, a gallery exhibit starting on Monday from Valerie Goodwin, who's a nationally known fiber artist, does things like quilting and stuff like that. And then uh, later on over there, there's, uh, they're bringing in the chef Elise Wims, who some folks know from the, the Bravo Network. But she's a famous uh, kind of celebrity chef, and she's a, a Pittsburgh native, and she's going to be doing some events over at the Hill House as well. So what's the significance uh, of these different events? Uh, what ties them all together? Well, it's about uh, uh, African-American artists principally um, in, in the Hill District has, you know, for decades, generations, been identified with African-American culture. It was a big center of African-American culture. August Wilson is identified with it, right. the jazz scene going back into the mid-century um, and even before that. So this, this is a way to spotlight the contributions of African-American artists to Pittsburgh. Finally, Charlie, we made it to March, which means baseball is around the corner for Pittsburgh. The Pirates play their first spring training game this week in Bradenton, Florida, and you'll be heading there for City Paper. So what is an alt-weekly like CP? How do we cover uh, sports or spring training like that? I think it's twofold. I think first it's uh, we do the the general baseball stuff. I have a background in sports writing, so that's not not anything that's, that's new to me. So you got to do the the general sort of preview stuff, but then what I try and look for are uh, are the interesting people who go to spring training, who spend their time down there. Uh, I've met some interesting people the last few years going down, and uh, just sort of telling their stories why the team is important to them. Because the, if it's one thing, I've loved baseball for years. If it's one thing that that I always loved about it was how insane people get. And like I know football fans can can obviously get crazy, but there's just something about baseball fans that you know football fan gets drunk and he yells you know you suck i'm gonna kill you but a baseball fan you really get the impression that they mean it i remember my first baseball game i don't remember what year it was i was young um and my dad took me to three rivers and we were and we had great seats and it's my dad was a cleveland indians fan but the pirates were closer for us and at one point uh, we're just sitting there and i don't I forget what the play was but my dad stands up and yells and tells Willie Stargell he's going to cut his balls off. I have no idea 
why, but I, you know, I, you know, got, got charged up and, 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 you know, people around started yelling at my dad. Cause this is the seventies, you know, you get cut for stuff like that back then. And, uh, you know, I don't know. There's just something about the people. I mean, my, my crazy old man <laughs> was one of them who just baseball is just such like a, um, it's the purest of the unpure sports, I guess. It's just like, there's just something about something about the setting. I mean, you still have, you have player contracts, which are out of control. You have, you know, steroid use, juicing and all this stuff. But I don't know. There's still something that I can defend about baseball that's um, just kind of wholesome, but not really. So what can our readers expect uh, from your coverage over the next uh, couple weeks? Well, I'll be heading down uh, March 15th. Um, and I plan on, you know, on before the season starts, um, I'll be sending back uh, some photos and, and daily stories and some tidbits that we'll uh, put out uh, on our website and on our Twitter account. As far as our Pirates edition goes, we'll have uh, just a season preview. I'll do my normal five to watch, maybe five players you didn't think about uh, uh, that will make an impact this year. And then um, there'll, be an ex- there'll be an additional player or coach profile. And I, I always like to find a fan down there who does something weird. Last year I found a lady who made um, – the biggest quilt I've ever seen out of Free Shirt Friday t-shirts. And uh, she goes down and gets it autographed, and then they actually give it to Pirates Charities to auction off for, uh, for, for, uh, for that organization. So it's, it's just it's – I mean, everybody down there is just, just chilling and just relaxing and watching baseball. And uh, I believe that I'll also be having a few conversations with you reporting back for this uh, podcast uh, for the two weeks I'm down there. And um, uh, look forward to uh, sending back my reports. I guess what I'm curious about, uh, we we touched on it a little bit before, but is there like a camaraderie with all the other press people? I mean, do you, is ever are you with are you together at the bar going to restaurants, or is it like steely eyed, competitive? We hate each other. There's some of that with with some folks down there. I mean, I I I cover the team a few times during the season, and I go down for spring training. Um, I meet people every year. Last year, I, I got to know a writer from the Sarasota paper who covers spring training uh just during that time and then he doesn't won't write about the pirates again for another year but um so i've met i've met some folks like that but i actually don't have that um that camaraderie especially with with pittsburgh media i I don't really have that um in fact last year um i go in and they they built a new press press building last year it was state of the art it was really nice and when you go into the report to the room where you can set up your computer and such there are nameplates for certain, you know, the writers who are down there all the time, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Trib, uh, MLB.com, etc. And I notice a chair that doesn't have a, uh, a, a nameplate, so I sit down and set up. A photographer from one of the big two papers, I won't mention any names, comes into me and says, uh, hey, asshole, can't you read? You're in my seat. And I look over and I said, well, there's no name here. He said, I get two spots. Ask anybody. I get two fucking spots. And that's just, they, like, certain people, they don't like outsiders. It's just sort of like, it's a really tight community. I don't want to mention the photographer's name, but anyone who knows any post that photographers, oops, uh, <laughs> will quickly figure out who that was. Celine Roberts here with your weekend calendar. 
If you crave the spotlight, it could be time for your close-up. Hambones will host Unproduced Theater on Friday night, in which audience members perform the roles in unfinished and unproduced scripts. This is acting without any of the fuss. No lights, no stage, but there will definitely be action. If you'd rather watch someone else perform for you on Friday, Trevor Noah, comedian and host of The Daily Show, will be cracking jokes at the Carnegie Music Hall. Dan Savage is bringing Sexy back with his Hump Film Festival at the Ace Hotel on Friday and Saturday. This amateur porn film fest is funny, sensual, boundary-pushing, and heartwarming all in a matter of a few hours. So try something new and save yourself a seat. Black Forge Coffee Shop in Allentown hosts a spoken word performance this Friday and Saturday. Two queer women of color, Rin Park and Naomi Edmark, will show their art as well as a short film screening, exploring the journeys they've taken throughout their lives. This multimedia piece could be a window into someone else's soul if you dare to look. I'm Celine Roberts. Get out there this weekend. Thanks, Celine. How do you find out about all this stuff anyway? I bet it's the city paper listings. Those things rule. Well, that's episode seven in the bag. The naysayers said we'd never make it to seven, but here we are. The CP Podcast is produced by Ashley Murray and me, Alex Gordon, with Celine Roberts. Thanks to editor Charlie Deach, arts editor Bill O'Driscoll, and staff writer Rebecca Nuttall for filling out our panel this week. Today you heard Travel Through by MC Moma Nedon and producer Billy Hoyle. That's our MP3 Monday track, which you can download on our website at pghcitypaper.com. Additional music by me, Alex Gordon. Instagram and Twitter are two places you can find us online, at PGH City Paper, as well as on Facebook and in real life in our weekly newspaper. And if you missed it, here's that code word one more time. Dinosaur. Dinosaur. Dinosaur.